I have been thinking about Greg Gravitt and also uh, Luke and Kayla's uh, dad, uh, Kayla's father, Brian Mason. Some of you may not know, but he was an elder where uh, Luke has grown up. Uh, and also, you may not know either, but there's a good friend of Melina and I that uh, they lost their baby recently. So it shows the reality of life and death. And that. And I think about Christ's death and his resurrection makes it possible that we don't have to uh, experience the second death. But it's good for us to consider that we're all going that way and we need to be ready. Second Corinthians 12, as we come here, there's some very interesting points that Paul makes, and it's a little bit challenging to understand what he's saying, but it is in the context where he's answering those who were self-aggrandizing, those false teachers who were self-promoting. And so Paul is reluctant to boast, but so his boast is a little bit different than the way these false teachers do it. But if he's going to boast, he's going to boast about his weaknesses. He's going to boast about the things in which he needs to rely upon God. And it's all about humility. and It's all about reminding us our proper place in this life. Paul is having to answer those who were criticizing him they were quite petty in some of the accusations that they were making about Paul, but they should have understood that Paul loved them. They should have understood that. And if any church should have known that, it ought to have been the Corinthian church. So keep that in mind as we read through some of this. But in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. Some of your translations would say that I'm going to continue to boast, but recognize that it's not really what he wants to do. He says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So remember in the previous chapter he had talked about the things that he was going to boast about was his weaknesses, the sufferings that he endured. Well, now he's about to add another to it. If, if he really wanted to go down the road of boasting, okay, let's add another here to it. Okay, I... I've received these revelations of God, but understand that he's not boasting about those things really, as we'll see. But he says in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities." For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, 
And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Well, let's deal with a little bit of that. So, he talks about this event 14 years ago. Now, bear in mind that there are some people who think that the man that he's referring to who was caught up to the third heaven, some people take the view that Paul may be talking about himself in third person, but he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you about a man, but uh, they might think that's actually talking about Paul. I don't really know whether he's talking about himself or maybe he's talking about someone else, but he's saying, let me tell you about this event, but I can't really tell you about the event. So it's kind of interesting when he says, whether in the body or out of the body, uh, earlier in chapter 5, 4 and 5, Paul had talked about how our body is a tent, uh, but we have a heavenly dwelling, a building not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. Uh, we know that we're more than our body. Okay? Our body is, is something that is going to wear out. Our body is temporary. So there is a life beyond this one. But Paul is recognizing that he, he can't really say whether this was in the flesh or not. But then he, he talks about the third heaven. So what's that? Well, this, this is the best that I can understand and recognizing that if if, if you see that I have misunderstood this, uh, let me know later. But uh, for your consideration, notice in Genesis chapter 1 that in the very beginning he says God made the heaven and the earth. Well, and then later he talks about a firmament. Uh, he talks about water under the firmament, water above the firmament. Some of your translations are going to call that firmament heaven. Some of them are going to call it sky. Some are going to say expanse, depending on which translation you're using. But if you would notice in verse 20, and maybe perhaps this could help us understand, what does this mean, third heaven? Okay. So verse 20 of Genesis 1, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature." that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open, open firmament of heaven. So whatever heaven he's referring to there is where the birds fly. 
Well, the Jews thought of that as the first heaven, that area of space where, where birds fly. But then you have up above the atmosphere in what we might now call outer space, go back to verse 14, God said, Let there be light in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. So they would have thought of that as the second heaven. So first heaven where the birds are, second heaven, outer space where the lights, sun and moon and stars are. But then the third heaven then would be the spiritual realm that beyond this earth, beyond the physical, beyond outer space, which Psalm 148.4 talks about the heaven of heavens, or some of your translations may say the highest heavens, that would be where God's throne is. Uh, also, Deuteronomy talks about that, the heaven of heavens. Solomon, when he built the temple, said, even the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. But we recognize that there's a spiritual heaven. So whenever you, when you think about that, it's, if you... You know, we, we, we can, in modern science, use a Hubble telescope, and they've been able to see beyond our galaxy, on, in, on even in, it's unfathomable to understand, you know, things that are light years away when you think about that. You think, you think about how marvelous God is in His design. Some of these stars, if you think about the time it takes for the light to get from those stars from their distance to the earth, and, and, it, and the possibility that those stars have burned out already, but the light is now reaching us is mind-blowing. But God has made this. But there's a, there's a place that no, no telescope, no modern technology can see and peer into. It's not like you can go to some physical place beyond this one and eventually see where God is, because this is something not made with hands. Uh, remember, I uh, made that reference earlier in the, in the book about... Uh, go back and, and look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Notice how he words this. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I think he's not talking about anything in a, any physical place. The, remember, the heavens and the earth will pass away. Okay. All the physical will pass away. But this spiritual place, this is what he's talking about. Well, Paul mentions a man being caught up to this place. But he's not allowed to talk about it. You remember uh, years ago, there were uh, a couple of different uh, occasions, books that were written of people who claimed that they went to heaven and back. I think there are people who like these accounts because they want to believe that there is in hev uh, heaven. 
But the problem with those sorts of accounts is uh, they don't know what they're saying. Or, or people don't realize. Uh, they might be well-meaning and they're talking about this. And I believe in heaven, but I don't believe these accounts that other people were talking about. Because no, if you notice the, uh, the comparison between the way Paul talks about it and the way these other people talk about these accounts of going into heaven and back. Paul talks about that, but he's not allowed to talk about it. What all does he tell you about what's, what's up there and what was said? He said, I can't tell you. And he says it's unlawful for me to utter the things that were said. That's interesting. So how can these other people write books about it? And, and Paul is just briefly mentioning it in a letter, but he's saying I can't tell you all the details. So that tells me that I, I don't believe these accounts of, of, of what these other people are talking about even though I do believe wholeheartedly with all my heart that we can be with God in heaven, and I believe it is a real place. But whenever he says this, he says, I got to experience something here, and if I'm going to brag about something, I'm going to brag about this man, but I'm not going to brag about myself. So again, he's talking about this foolish boasting idea that it's awkward for Paul to talk about but in the context of talking of saying that I've received these uh, revelations from God here's one that he hasn't spoken about before we know about these letters that he's written and evidently Paul has received more of these letters than any of the other apostles and so Paul is saying I'm I'm not behind the other apostles even though I'm not any greater either. And I can't really boast of myself. In all of this, it's foolish to talk about his own accomplishments, even though God is giving him this blessing of revelation and knowledge. And you know what that tells me? That there's a lot of things we don't know. I remember when Jesus was speaking to the Sadducees and they we're talking about the afterlife, and they're trying to relate the things in the afterlife to the way things are here. And Jesus says, you're mistaken. You don't know the power of God. You, know, you don't really understand what it's going to be like, that you're not, you're, you're not going to be like you are here. And he makes the point that you're going to be as the angels are, not going to be married or given in marriage. You know what that tells me? How many other things about the next life that we don't even really can comprehend. And yet we try to put it in the way we currently think. He talks about a language that he can't tell, some kind of heavenly language. You remember in the first letter he talked about if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. There, how do you explain some things that are not translatable? And how do you explain things that are not even bound by the laws of nature that are found on this earth. I imagine it's a whole different rim and a lot of things we don't know. And so the end point is we need to be humble about what we don't know. It's strange that a lot of people act like they know a lot more and it, it makes them more arrogant. And in reality, they, they're really showing how much they don't know. So be humble. But then, let's turn the flip side of that. 
even if we do know some things, like Paul did, Paul knew some things, and yet he's being taught to be humble. And one way that he's taught to be humble is God gave him a thorn in the flesh. I don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Some people act like they know, and again, be humble about that. But, but I don't know that it really matters. Paul didn't state specifically what it was. Regardless of, of what it was, I mean, you, you might could say, well, it was some physical problem. That's a possibility. So it might be some temptation. That's a possibility. It might be a person. Maybe that's a possibility. I don't know, and I don't know that it really matters because he didn't name specifically what it was. I think it's foolish to debate what that really was other than just say he had something that was so difficult that he really wanted it removed, which is interesting to me when he names all the things he suffered. Out of all those things he mentioned in the previous chapter that he had suffered, here's one that he really wanted rid of. I mean, was it worse? Was it something he was still struggling with? Was it something related to one of those sufferings that he talked about? But he wanted it gone. Now, maybe we can relate to the understanding of going through some difficulty we want to not have to struggle with any longer. Who among us can't feel something about that? then when maybe here we can relate a little bit with what Paul is saying from our own circumstances of wanting something to end that we're struggling with. And so what does he do? He seeks the Lord. And that's where we should go. Where can we go when we are struggling with something if we can't go to the Lord about it? And yet he goes to the Lord and he asks Him and he prays about it but the Lord's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, my favor, my love for you should be enough for you. Which gives us a, a, a question that we need to ask ourselves and deal with. In this circumstance, for whatever reason, whether Paul understood it or whether we understand it, God chose not to answer Paul's request the way he was asking. Didn't mean he didn't hear him. He heard him. Didn't mean he didn't care, because he does. But there's obviously a purpose in this, and Paul comes to grip with that purpose and accepts it. And I believe there's a lesson in that. We are taught to pray and ask God. God knows our needs, but yet we're still told to ask in James 1, he says, ask in faith. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. He gives to all men liberally and upbraids not. But when you ask, ask in faith. Don't doubt. So remember that. Ask God. But know and believe that He has your best interest at heart. And then we're taught to ask persistently. In Luke 18, he, Jesus says we ought to pray and not to lose heart. And he gives the example of a widow who wanted justice for her husband. But she goes to a judge, and the judge doesn't really care about her. But the judge, just to get her off his back, and so that she doesn't bother him any longer, grants her request. 
And the Lord makes this point. He says, listen, if an unjust judge that doesn't really care about this widow answers her request, think about your Heavenly Father who does care about you, who is concerned for you, and His ears are always open and He's listening. So avail yourself and be persistent and ask and don't lose heart. So I, I think both praying in faith and persistence in prayer are taught. However, here's an example of where God answers no. And in this case, Paul has accepted the answer. And so I compare that with what Jesus did in the garden. When Jesus went away and prayed three times, and he asked, let this cup pass from me. And he was in agony. He was, in, he was sweating as drops of blood. He wanted his request, or else he would not have asked for it. And yet he was praying within the realm of God's will. We need to remember that when we pray, that sometimes there are perspectives of our own that appears what I want, I need, and I want the Lord to answer my request, but sometimes God knows better than I. And we've got to trust His wisdom in that. It doesn't mean prayer doesn't work. But what Jesus did, he said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know, we've got to remember that. Pray. Ask. But it, we need to pray within the realm of God's authority and will. That Sometimes there may be things. We, we might say, I don't know why God would not give me this request. seems good to me. It, it seems like, but, but that's our earthly wisdom when we're not God. But perhaps Paul is coming to understand this and he says maybe the Lord is telling me this so that I won't be exalted above measures. So that I don't get the big head. You know, and here we understand a little bit about challenges and trials and difficulties. Maybe not all trials are bad for us. We don't like them. They're definitely uncomfortable. Not, we don't look forward to them. We can potentially dread the challenges and battles we face, but sometimes we need to do as James taught to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Because sometimes the way we react to the trial and the challenge, that struggle can make us better if we let it. Okay, so there is a point where we need to uh, accept that the struggle, you know, sometimes I, we want it, we want it right now. But that struggle, that challenge can sometimes keep us humble. The period of the judges, I think, is a lot like this. You, you see a people who forget God, and what do they do? They, because they forgot God, God turns them over to a foreign country that enslaves them. Now they're down and out. They're, they're in a miserable state, and they're in need, and so they cry out to God for deliverance. God hears their cry because of their cry of repentance, and He grants their request, and He sends them a deliverer, and now they're free. And then 
there's a period of peace until the judge dies, and then they get comfortable again. And then until God says, okay, chastise them again, so he turns them over to another country, and the cycle repeats. And I looked at my own life, and I think you, you might be able to do this as well and see that your life can possibly have a resemblance of that period of judges right within your own life where you have this period where you're, you're, you're struggling with something, you're in need, and so you cry out to God for help, and then uh, God answers your request, and then now here's a period of uh, refreshing, and things get a little bit better, and then now you begin to forget where your blessings came from, who answered your prayer, and so... Uh, now you might need to be chastised again to uh, go back to a period of realizing your need for God. The lesson we need to learn in all of this is that we need, we, we need God all the time, and we do need to pray. But sometimes these challenges are there for, because God is helping us to remain humble and see our need for Him. If we have everything, would we long for heaven as much? If we had everything... Would we appreciate what we do have as much? Sometimes it's when we lose something and when we don't have something that we want is when we begin to appreciate a little more. And so Paul is talking about all this and that he's learned to be content with the Lord's answer. He even says, most gladly, therefore, I will... uh, Glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's an interesting perspective that we can learn from. It's an irony that when you are powerless and you recognize that, that sometimes there's not a thing you can do about this situation. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do to make it better. And for whatever reason, God hasn't chosen to take it away either. And in, in those circumstances, have we learned to say, you know, I, I need to just trust in God here. I need to just trust Him more and love Him. And sometimes letting go of what we're fighting against actually it frees us sometimes. And, and that's what Paul is recognizing, that I am the strongest when I realize my weakness. And, and that I'm stronger in the Lord whenever I realize my uh, shortcomings or my uh, inability to be able to change my circumstance. Sometimes that's what makes us better. And I believe there's a lesson there. But Paul is using all of this to say, this is what I'm going to brag about. Uh, but then he says in verse 11, I am become a fool in glory. Again, he calls it foolish to be boasting this way. But he says, For I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I'm coming to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. 
And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think you that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. Lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again... My God will humble me among you that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So evidently, we know Paul had been to Corinth the first visit in in Acts 18. And here he's about to come the third time, so there must have been some other visit in there in between. But he's, he's reminding them that if anyone should have uh, been able to support him, it should have been them. And yet, for the reason of the gospel, he decided not to and take his support elsewhere or from elsewhere. And he says the reason why he's doing that, it appears that some were criticizing Paul for this. It sounds to me like what they were saying was something along the lines of, well, He's doing this for some ulterior motive or, he's, or, or something like that. And Paul is basically telling him he, the reason he's doing it is because he don't want to be burdensome. And he uses the analogy of a parent with a child. Certainly it's not wrong to teach your children some responsibility and maybe even charge them for some things as they get a little older to teach them you know, what the value of things and things cost. It's kind of an idea you know, for my, my older children. Maybe we might ought to implement some of that. But yet, on the other hand, he does say that uh, on a, it's not really what a parent wants to do is to consider that it's the child's job to lay up for them. And so that he's using that. We understand this analogy that uh, I don't. I don't want my children to have to take care of me when I'm capable. I, I want to lay up for my children. Uh, and, and that's what Paul is using that as an analogy. And so that's why he didn't take the pay. It wasn't because uh, of some ulterior motive. It was because he loved them. And they should have understood that. And, and then he even brings Titus into it. He said, oh, oh, you know, this money that we prepared and that we're going to send to uh, Jerusalem for the needy saints... Do you think Titus is involved in this? If you think that there was some uh, mismanagement of the, of the funds here, did we not have the same goal? Or you really think that he's doing this? And I, I think that's why he's probably bringing Titus in along that. But he says that everything that we do is all because we want to build up your faith. And, and the reason why he's telling them about it now is because he's trying to teach them. Even the examples that he gave of what he calls foolish boasting, he's not doing it to really to brag. He's doing it only because they forced his hand. And so now he's, 
having to explain some of the situations that he's dealt with in order to be able to get the hearing among them so they would listen to him and, and because of his words being from God. He wants God's word to have free course in their life. And in order for it not to be hindered, sometimes you have to explain some things with, with some brethren who come up with some kind of concocted thing and hindrance of why they can't listen to some bits of truth. But then he says he does have a concern that when he comes there, there's going to be some brethren who are still not living right. There's, it is a concern that we need to guard against, that we don't have some kind of discord among us. It's so easy for a rumor mill to spread. It's so easy that when, you know, maybe there were some who were saying some things about Paul that were not true, and yet maybe some knew that it wasn't really true. But, you know, it, you think about it this way. If somebody accuses someone else falsely, it could be possible in the back of your mind you're like, well, maybe. Is there a possibility? You see the damage with rumors? You see the damage with uh, whispering and, and tail-bearing and things of that sort? We, we need to guard against that. If a brother starts spreading something, we need to let it stop with us and not spread that. We need to look for the good in our brethren. If, the, if a brother has it... It's been suspected of something. Go to that brother with the spirit of love and wanting to make sure they're right with God, not because you caught them and not because you're looking for fault. The devil is a fault finder. He's an accuser. We need to be looking for the good in bread. I'm not saying be gullible, but I'm saying we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And, but Paul is worried about that. And he's worried about immorality. He's worried about coming and finding them in a state, like, like in the first letter where there was a man who had his father's wife. Is there some sin that's unrepentant of that somebody has not dealt with? And as we bring the lesson to a close, we've got to ask the question as I think about that. If, is there something in your life that, let's say, is private and maybe no one else knows about it? and you know in yourself that you need to correct it, then why not correct that so that you don't have to live with that guilt? Why, why carry that burden with you any longer? If, if you're not a Christian, why don't you erase the guilt, let the Lord erase it by His blood? Believe in His blood. Believe in what He's done for you and in believe in Him. And change your ways and make a confession. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, and your sins will be washed away. Acts 2.38. And if you've done that, but you have committed some sin, forgiveness is still available if you'll repent. You can come to the front, give us your hand, whatever your need is, as we stand and as we sing.